So it'd be very uncommon for like a mom and a new baby to be at home alone for six or eight or 10 hours a day. That would almost rarely ever happen. There would almost always be nieces or nephews or a cousin or a mother-in-law or an aunt, other women, maybe more than one, who are, who are around and who are kind of mothering together. We believe that not just babies are born, mothers are born too. We're your hosts, Lara, a labor and delivery nurse and aspiring midwife, and Melissa, a mother and doula. Welcome to Mother Birth, a space for thought-provoking and inspirational conversations about birth and the deep exploration of what it means to become a mother. Welcome to the show today. Laura and I are here together in the studio. We've, uh, the last several episodes, we have been apart as she is now in Texas, so sadly. Um, but she's back in Portland for a few days. So we're here in the studio, which is always fun. And we've got a special guest from very far away today. Um, we've got an expat that's living down in Guatemala. Her name is Michelle Acker Perez. And Michelle, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Hi, it is fun to be here. I am originally from Southern California, and I was there until about seven years ago when I moved to Guatemala. I planned to be here for a year. I was teaching English with a nonprofit, and in the course of that year, started dating my husband, and we later got married and have two kids. They were both born here in Guatemala, and we're still here seven years later. Nice. Well, that's what we can't wait to hear about is your sort of cross-cultural experience of giving birth and raising your kids abroad. How old are your kids now? My daughter, Elena, is four years old and my son, Mateo, is four months old. Okay. So backing up to what we were talking about just before we started recording, um, we love to hear a little about kind of what, you know, you, you told us what took you down there. Um, and you then obviously met who became your husband, but can you tell us a little bit about just your transition to, to Guatemalan culture and your experience living down there? Yeah, I, um, I originally came to Guatemala actually 10 years ago to study Spanish. I had, um, just a desire to learn another language. I always liked traveling and cultures and I really wanted to improve my Spanish. And so I came here to learn Spanish 10 years ago. And pretty quickly just fell in love with the culture and the pace of life and the people. And I didn't meet my husband until later. Um, We started working with the same organization. And I should mention, he's Guatemalan. He's from here. Mm. Um, That wasn't implied. But we started working with the same nonprofit. And um, the... I was teaching at a school and he was doing a community development program. And then he would help translate for some of the short-term volunteer groups that were here. And so that's how we initially met is he was our translator. And um, then when we got married, we started working together and we work in rural communities around Guatemala doing community development work and holistic health, Mm -hmm. primarily focused on bringing access to clean water and fuel efficient stoves to families um, with some education components and some training along the way. But our, our goal is that Guatemalan families would become partners and help to build the actual things that they need. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the process are, are learning about their own health, health of their families. And we partner with donors from the U.S. as well as short-term teams. And we have 
three Guatemalan technicians who um, we kind of hire to run the on the field program. So that's what we do kind of day to day, as well as parent and take care of our two two kiddos. Nice. What's the organization that you work with? It's called Mission Impact. And the project that we run is called Healthy Communities. There's a website and um, yeah. Yeah, cool. we'll, pro- we'll provide a link to that in the show notes so people can kind of see what you're doing in Guatemala. Um, so I, I was wondering too, I know that it can be difficult when you decide to make, maybe to transition to stay in Guatemala and to do that also, you know, you're doing that based on a relationship. What was that like for you with your family and your friends back home? You know, I think it kind of, I mean, it kind of happened slowly. So again, I had already had an interest in Guatemala because of learning Spanish and because of the organization mission impact that I had volunteered with summers previously, um, And so it kind of just felt like the next step. I think my parents were supportive, yet a bit surprised when I said I wanted to come for a year. Um, I had a teaching job in Santa Barbara, California, and so it meant taking a leave of absence from that job. And and on paper, I really had, I would say, a great life. I mean, it was was a good life. It was, I mean, I had a great church community. I had a wonderful job, which was hard to get in California at that time. Um, I lived like a mile from the beach and just had a lot of the freedoms of a young adult single life. Um, and I loved that, but there was always something that was missing. And I think coming to Guatemala kind of helped piece that together a little bit. Mm. Um, and, and so then when I met my husband, we talked about going back to California, but I think, um, it would have been, we would have had to let go of some of the opportunities we had here for work and, just the privilege and kind of some of the benefits of living, I think, overseas, having flexibility. Um, I would say because most things take longer in Guatemala, and maybe it's true in developing countries in general, we don't have the convenience of Amazon Prime or really any postal service or delivery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, you can't pay you can't pay bills online. I have to go to the bank and wait in line. And things generally take longer. So I feel like we in some ways do less, yeah. but that's yeah. afforded a little bit of just more flexibility, I think, for our family. We're both able to work in areas that we're passionate about and have time with our kids and afford childcare, which I just know is a challenge in the U.S. for a lot of working or young families with parents that are either both working or one parent is working. So, um, so kind of just evolved slowly. And then once um, we were here and living and married, we got married here. Um, we wanted to start a family. It just made sense to have kids here. I had quite a few friends who were like, are you going to come back to the U S to have the baby? And I was no, I mean, I don't, didn't have insurance in the U S at the time. I didn't want to be traveling, you know, at eight, seven months pregnant into, I didn't have a home, like any kind of routine. So that option just never crossed my mind. Mm -hmm. Although I do have some friends here who have gone back to the U S and maybe have a really great, you know, family care provider or hospital or family situations, they can go back and have their babies there and then come back here. That was just never an option for me or my husband. So yeah, I'm, I'm really curious, as you once you were pregnant, and you knew you would be giving birth there, were there aspects of the Guatemalan healthcare system or like maternity care that you were unsure about or that you were not like comfortable with? Like what, how did you orient yourself to that? Um, I think I had a number of friends who had already, I mean, other expat women, foreigners who had already had babies um, and kids here. And so I kind of learned a bit from them. And I think before I was even pregnant, I had just heard of this midwife and she's the only kind of, you know, German Guatemalan midwife. Um, And so I just knew 
that feels really good to me. I like her practice, things that I've heard, her philosophy. Um, I would say Guatemalan healthcare is greatly divided among resources and access to kind of who can afford and who has access to to great medical care. There are mm-hmm. top-notch hospitals and really good medical care if you can pay for it. Yeah. But the majority of the country would be kind of limited to the national hospitals, which are poorly, I would say, just underfunded. There's not a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. They have very limited like physical space and I think kind of personnel people. And so I have heard just kind of horror stories um, I mean, for one, men are not men and or, you know, a mother-in-law or a mom or a doula, anyone, no one can go in with the the birthing mom. Mm. So when a Guatemalan woman who's going to the national hospital, she's like dropped off in like the waiting room or in the emergency room on a gurney and then is really left to labor by herself. Mm. Um, Nurses will come in and check, I think, appropriate vitals. But, and again, I only know this from hearing other women share their stories. I have not personally been. Um, and then when it's time to to push or time, you know, for the baby to be born, there's just a lot of either physical force used. Like my sister-in-law said, like the doctor put his elbow into her stomach to like push the baby down, mm-hmm. like horrible practices <laughs> that I can't. And again, I think it's kind of not on the intent of hurting anyone, but there's a yeah. limited amount of space and there's other women who are laboring in the hallway. They have to bring someone else in. Yeah. So there's a high rate of C-sections. I want to say, don't quote me yet. I'll look for the link, but 96% of Guatemalan births, I'm sorry, there's like a 96% rate of unnecessary C-sections or something really, really high. I would say higher than the U S because it's quicker. And so doctors can, yeah. I mean, quicker for the doctors, not quicker for the woman and yeah. the recovering mom. So all I knew is I did not want that experience. Yeah. Um, and I wanted my husband with me. He wanted that as well, but didn't know that was an option. Um, unless you're in a private hospital, again, you can't have anyone really in there with you. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of an easy option. There wasn't, I just knew I had heard such good things about this midwife and I naturally kind of align with some of the thinking and probably philosophy behind midwifery. And so it was just an easy choice. And I received, I feel like the best care. If I was having many more children, I would have all of them with Hannah was um, her name mm-hmm. and the, um, her, her clinic just, yeah. I mean, from prenatal birth and postnatal, just really good care. And again, having friends in the U.S. who were having babies around the same time, it was interesting to kind of compare things that, you know, they had to do. I feel like there was a lot more um, required things in the U.S., again, maybe for, for safety, maybe kind of for culture, mm-hmm. cultural reasons of avoiding lawsuits and yeah. living in litigious society, things women have to do or things that hospitals can't do. But I was just shocked to learn about because there are very few rules in Guatemala, again, for better or worse, um, that I just really felt like I was in good hands and kind of got personalized care without any kind of requirements from the government or insurance or anything like that. And you were just, you paid the midwife directly for her services? Yeah. Yeah. So we paid out of pocket. Where does your, uh, where does the midwife practice? Like is where do her deliveries happen? So I live in Antigua, Guatemala, which is a small kind of more colonial, um, smaller city, more touristy. Um, It's about an hour from Guatemala City, which is the capital of Guatemala. And so she has a clinic in the capital. She actually partners with an OB. Um, The OB has the downstairs 
um, kind of clinic for her patients and any kind of recommended or necessary C-sections. And then Hannah, the midwife, has her practice on the upstairs level. And there's like two different birthing rooms with tubs and a bathroom and kind of a bed um, and then like a meeting kind of exam area. Um, but she also does a lot of home births. Um, mm-hmm. So I had a number of friends who had home births like in the Antigua area and she mm-hmm. would attend um, with her intern at the home if that was a request or um, like in my case, me and my husband drove into Guatemala City um, while I was in labor and chose to have our babies there. So mm-hmm. her clinic's in Guatemala City. Okay. And she sees, I think, I think her clientele is half kind of expat um, foreigners from various countries, not just the U.S., but, you know, Europe, um, Australia, and then half probably Guatemalan women who either have heard of her or want a different birth experience maybe mm-hmm. than they've been offered um, at a hospital. So, Yeah. I'm curious also if you have, you know, relationships with any, you know, Guatemalan women there who... Like, how do they perceive this, the way it works in their system now and in relation to, you know, what may be more traditional in their culture, um, you know, before, you know, before urbanization and all of that? I'm just curious, you know, we're kind of we're kind of exploring more what it looks like in different countries, both in, you know, the modern day version of that and and then also in comparison to what you know traditional aspects of that would look like yeah that's a great question and I always um feel like I have to give a disclaimer because I'm in some ways a foreigner I'm not from here Mm -hmm. I sometimes hesitate to speak for all of Guatemalans because there are such again diverse experiences and classes and access to resources but I would say in general um my sense is Guatemala sometimes feels about 50 years behind the U.S. in medical care. And again, in some, I'm making generalizations, of course. Again, there are top-notch hospitals here that, and some would disagree with me for sure. But um, I think most women, I think sadly don't always get a lot of information. It's like they have a lot of choice. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I would say traditionally, a lot of women had births at home with a midwife, especially in more rural areas, because there was no access to a hospital, either there was no transportation, no way to get a laboring mom there. And so there were midwives. Um, but that is viewed as a little bit of like a lower class kind mm-hmm. of thing. Like if sure. you were to have a home birth, and again, this is historically, it would be viewed as you didn't have an option to go to a hospital, like you had to have a home birth yeah. versus going to a hospital would be associated with a bit of privilege and you have resources to get there. You have a car, um, you have a way to pay for it or, um, And I think slowly some women um, probably realize a little bit more, you know, that having a hospital birth or having a C-section maybe isn't the best way. But I would say there's definitely less information. I feel like if the U.S. is like information overload, I would say a lot of Guatemalan women have access to very little information and so actually part of um, Hannah, the, the midwife that I used, part of um, the nonprofit that she started in combination with her clinic was actually to train kind of indigenous midwives to kind of empower them with like, real life skills necessary, life-saving skills for the mom, ways to do kind of medical, more medically inclined exams to check the baby, check the mom, because often they are the only option for a lot of Guatemalan women in rural communities. Um, And I would say that that is true. Like you're, you know, not speaking for Guatemala, but speaking for cultures that are 
what would be perceived as behind, you know, the, the medical Western model. Like and that's a very uh-huh. similar model in Thailand and India and women who work there is this kind of like once the advent of the hospital came, people started moving away from what, you know, we, what we call lay midwifery here. And then mm-hmm. those people there's, you know, as there are less and less midwives, there's still a huge amount of people who need it, need that kind of care. And so the training deficit kind of grew because less people were interested in being midwives, more people were having birth in the hospital. Yet there's still huge, a huge population of people who are going to be having home births with midwives. So yeah, it's great that she's kind of building that bridge. Uh huh. And I would say again, there are, I think there's wonderful OBs. I would yeah. say I have friends, Guatemalan and expats who, again, if they're, you know, again, have more resources, they would see an OB, she would attend them in a private hospital, and they would have their birth that way, mm-hmm. either vaginally or C-section, um, and receive, I would say, really good care. Totally. Um, but again, usually, they're a bit more educated, and they have access to kind of the privilege of choice, and they get to choose. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most the average Guatemalan woman would laugh at the fact that like, it's this common idea to make a birth plan and that women tour the hospital. I know I just, it's common things that I think most women in the U S do before having a baby, yeah. which is great, but you don't realize how cultural that is until you live in a place where there is no hospital tour, no hospital choice, no birth plan choice. Yeah. The goal is just to have a healthy baby, healthy mom in whatever way that looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just tell us a little bit about your first birth. How did things um, go? It was long and hard and wonderful. Um, <laughs> so I would say it was pretty, I had a pretty textbook pregnancy, um, nothing real noteworthy. And labor um, also started, again, pretty, I feel like how it's, you know, supposed to. There were no huge surprises. Um, my goal was to labor at home for as long as possible. Um, I think I was 39 almost 40 weeks with my daughter. Mm-hmm. And um, in general, Hannah was kind of hands off. She just, you know, again, like most midwives kind of knew my body would go into labor when it was ready. I remember being a bit antsy and having her do like check me to see if I was dilated a week before. And she said, nope, just go home and, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. And so when labor started, I remember being excited. Um, but I don't think I knew kind of how, how long it would be. And probably the biggest kind of stressor for us or more for my husband was we had about an hour, two hour drive, depending on traffic from our home in, mm. to the birth, to the birth center. That's what I was going to um, ask. So how depend- far? Yeah. So depending what time of day it is, again, there's usually rush hour traffic really between five in the morning and eight, nine in the morning. Mm. It's just pretty, there's like one road into Guatemala city and it gets pretty backed up. And then in the afternoon leaving again, Guatemala city heading back out of town. But I, I'm not much of a warrior. I just kind of knew I was going to be okay, but my husband did not. So he was really anxious about, a, mm-hmm. you know, having a baby in the car. Um, but I labored at home. I would say I woke up with contractions in the morning. It was a Friday. Um, and I woke up with contractions probably around five thirty six in the morning. And I was surprised that I just knew, like I had never given birth before. I just knew, oh, these are contractions. They were consistent enough. And, you know, it was like, period of cramping, but so much more intense and kind of had a, you know, a nice like rhythm to it. Mm-hmm. And I always joke um, that I really like the the contraction part of labor because it feels um, like really planned and kind of there's this like sequence and rhythm and I could breathe mm-hmm. through them and, and kind of I can anticipate the next one and then kind of feel the release of it's done and I can move around again. 
So I labored at home until I think about two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, did a little bit of walking, um, but generally was able to kind of breathe through contractions, felt okay. And then we drove into Guatemala City. And I remember at the time, Hannah's Clinic didn't have like um, any kind of food service. So we had to bring in kind of our own meal if we wanted to have a meal, you know, the next day or that evening or the next day. So I had food in the freezer kind of ready. And I told my husband I wanted to stop the bakery and get bread. And I was still talking and kind of very coherent. And he was like, we have to get into the city. And I was like, let's just stop and buy some bread. Um, and I remember the car ride being probably the most uncomfortable because I couldn't move as much. I mean, I was yeah. sitting in the car. Um, when we got to the clinic, I was seven centimeters, which I was like super excited about. And that was, gosh, I don't know, four, I don't know, four, four thirty. And I thought, okay, then this is it. She's going to be born. And I think it was the next four hours that were probably just the hardest, which maybe yeah. is, again, it's pretty textbook, but I just wasn't yeah. quite prepared. Yeah. Um, I was in like kind of a big birthing tub, which was what I wanted. Um, but I, I wasn't, I just kind of got stuck in there. I think at a few points, Hannah wanted me to move, kind of go on my knees, change positions. And I was just in so much pain. I, my husband was kind of behind me with his arms, like outside, he was outside the tub holding me up. And I, um, and I feel like I wasn't very, I, the, the pushing, I know some women feel really empowered by pushing or getting to that point. I never really, those muscles were hard for me to activate and I couldn't really figure out how to push or mm. how to really push down. That felt very foreign and hard yeah. where the contractions I was really able, I think, to maintain and breathe through. So I feel like I was in the tub and pushed for, I don't know, three hours. It was a long time. Mm. Um, but my daughter was born at, I think, 8.30 that evening and healthy and um, alert. And it was amazing. Um, I got to sit in the tub for a while and just hold her. And and I think the, the hardest part was I tore really badly, at least mm -hmm. with my first birth. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's her birth in a nutshell. <laughs> Did... Um, did your midwife, did you, um, you mentioned, you know, her suggesting you move positions and that kind of stuff. Did you feel like she was pretty hands-on in coaching you through labor or was she fairly hands-off during labor as well? Um, she was, I mean, I would say she was very attentive. I mean, she was gentle. Um, I think she would, you know, every, after every contraction or something, she would check the heartbeat with the Doppler, um, she definitely encouraged me to move. I was like stubborn and in pain and just said, no, I can't. Yeah. Um, and I do remember at one point with my daughter, I mean, again, I, I pushed for a long time and I didn't crown. I think the way most women crown, I was just pretty small and kind of took a while for her to come out. And I remember at one point, um, Hannah gave me some oxygen and said, okay, we need to get her out. I think her heart rate, her, her heart rate, her heart rate was dropping, um, Again, not like emergency mode, but just like Michelle's time to push her out. And so she kind of, I think, helped guide me through some really strong pushes. I don't quite remember all of it. It was, um, I mean, I was tired and exhausted and just that physical point of mm -hmm. I wasn't totally coherent. Um, and so, so she came out like all in one big, one big push. Mm -hmm. um, there was no like head and then, you know, the shoulders, you know, softly come out and then here she is. It was like she came out on one big push. And so mm -hmm. I tore pretty badly. Mm -hmm. um, but... Um, 
yeah, I just felt like she was very attentive to me. I mean, to my daughter, but it didn't feel there was none of the panic. And again, I trust I had also friends who she, you know, either during the course of their labor weren't progressing or something she felt like was out of her scope had referred her to a C-section. And so I also really trusted her, her judgment that mm-hmm. I just all along knew that she, she knew what she was doing. Um, so yeah, I knew at the end it was time to get her out, but there was no panic. Like, you know, she checked my daughter, but it wasn't like they had to whisk her away. She was, you know, breathing. She wanted to nurse, or at least she was rooting around to nurse. And um, they, she checked me, and you know, I wasn't bleeding too much. The placenta was fine. So I just appreciated it wasn't it wasn't a stressful environment or like a fearful yeah. environment. It was a really warm, and she was cautious and careful, but not there wasn't like a fearful panic, yeah. um, which I could see where there might be with another, you know, care provider or hospital or something. I'm very curious how this was for your husband. Um, especially as you had mentioned, he was kind of surprised he could be involved originally and then kind of what it was like for him. Or have you guys talked a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, um, again, he, we, we did a birthing class with Hannah. She has them at her clinic, mm-hmm. um, for first time parents and I think he kind of took his cues from me. At one point, I remember he wanted to get up and go text my family because he had been texting them updates. I think he wanted to grab a granola bar because it had been, you know, quite a few hours. And he went to stand up and I was like, no, stay here. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. And so he was just, I was like, he was very present with me. Um, and I think, I mean, I think it was amazing for him. It was, he's probably the only or the first, I mean, kind of son or brother-in-law kind of father and his family to kind of get a be with their wife um as as you know as she's had the baby um his own brother-in-law is in father like that just wasn't an option wasn't cultural mm-hmm. um and actually when my son was born a few months ago we also I mean had him in the city with Hannah again um but we invited my mother-in-law to come with us um and she because of kind of Guatemalan just rules. I mean, she couldn't go with any of her daughters when they gave birth in the hospitals. And so, mm-hmm. um, and again, because I was having a son, I think, and her, this is my husband is her youngest son. Um, and I'm pretty open. I, I would have loved for my mom to be there as well, but it was just harder because she's in California. Um, I just wanted her to be there as well. I think to kind of see, I knew it was, it was different for her to be in a, I would call it just kind of a relaxed and warm Mm -hmm. of the midwife. There wasn't like, you know, the sterileness of a hospital, not sterile, but like the, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a hospital setting. Mm -hmm. It felt like a, you know, there was a bed and carpet and a nice room. And, um, and so I think it was interesting to have her there as well. And again, she was, um, I know she was quiet and supportive. There were a few times she was trying to give me advice and I had to kind of like, just tell my husband, I can't do that right now. I can't, mm-hmm. you know, she didn't want me to breathe. She was worried that I was going to breathe and like breathe, bring the baby up as I was like taking these deep inhales and exhales. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I just know it was different for her. Yeah. She was really worried about me getting cold and the baby getting cold. Um, cause That's I was a grandma. Thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was really special. So I yeah. had my son also in, in water or in a water birth and she got to be there to kind of watch. And it was much faster. Second births are, so much better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm yeah, glad they, you feel that way. <laughs> yeah, they can be. <laughs> yes, and it's fresh. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You mentioned that 
the where she practices in the clinic that she was on, you know, kind of one story and then there was an OB who practiced on another level. So did you have access in that same facility if you did need a C-section or if you had decided you wanted pain medication or anything like that? Was that stuff available in that in that same facility? No, that's a great question. I, I do know the, the C-section it, it was available um, if me or the baby were in any kind of distress, like that, that would be an option for an yeah. emergency C-section. The doctor wasn't there that day. We would have had to, you know, call her in. Um, and you know what? I never even asked about pain medication because my first birth, um, at that point, Hannah was in a different clinic and there was no OB um, on, on, on kind of site. And so there wasn't an option of pain medication. And mm-hmm. I, I guess for better or worse in my head, I just knew it's not an option. And yeah. And, and I'm, I'm not choosing that. And again, not, not that that's for everyone, but right. I don't think it was, it was, it was never an option that occurred to me. Um, although looking back on it, I'm like, gosh, that would have been nice, but it wasn't an option in like the labor birth process. Yeah. Um, at least not that I know of. I never asked her about it directly, but with my son, birth was just so much faster. I mean, equally hard or not equally hard, hard and painful in a different way, but it was so fast that there wouldn't have been any time even if I did want something. Right. And you, and you drove as well from Antigua for your son? Yeah, we, we did. And my husband was equally nervous, if not more so, because (laughs) he had heard so many stories about second babies come faster. And, and in our relationship, I'm definitely, he's more the warrior than I am just in general. And I was like, we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. It takes a lot for me to really to get stressed out. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's a blessing because if I would have been stressed out, I probably would have been a bit more panicked and, and frantic because with my son, again, I woke up with contractions um, like 5, 5.30 in the morning and I kind of knew, okay, these are every three minutes. This is coming a little bit faster. And they were definitely more intense. Like my, we're getting my daughter ready for preschool and I had to like bend over and like stop talking during a contraction and then I could finish doing her hair and pigtails and um he took her to school and I tried to like you know put on some makeup and get dressed thinking we're going into the city but it was I mean it was hard to kind of move around I was having contractions and and Hannah's actually lives quite close to us like locally so she stopped by the house in the morning just to check me and it was this was after I think three hours of waking up with contractions. She's like, "Yep, you're at a five, you're five centimeters." Um, but this was eight thirty in the morning, and there was still traffic in Guatemala City. And so she said, "Well, you guys can leave now if you want, and I'll follow you." Um, she's like, "But you're going to be in the car for an hour and a half, two hours." She's like, "Or you can wait to leave in a little bit, and then you know you'll be in the car for an hour." Right. And I was like, "Okay, we'll wait for a little bit." And my husband was in the doorway. He's like, "No, we're going now." Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we packed up and we left and I think we got her clinic around 1030 or so. And, um, again, I was still able to walk upstairs, labored in the room for a little bit. And then, um, I feel like, again, she, I think midwives can just often tell by the pace of being able to talk and the sound of the moaning mm-hmm. and the pain. Um, and so I think it was like 1130 and she said, if you want to have this baby in the, in the tub, you probably should get in. And I was in there for a little bit, and I was a little bit more cooperative this time. I kind of went, I labored a little bit, kind of laying back, you know, in the tub, and then I moved to my, kind of on my knees, like leaning over, mm-hmm. like on the edge of the tub. So I guess I was backwards or, I don't know, on my knees, kind of on all fours, but just on my knees. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember at one point saying, like, I can't, I can't, kind of that intense, like, the baby's there and I have no energy left to push him out. And she said, you're doing it, you're doing it. And I just kind of held on to that, like, 
those moments when you just feel like I really can't, I have nothing left in me that my body was kind of already doing it. And he was born at 1215. Like, I mean, six hours from like waking up with contractions to I had him in my arms and, um, and it was wonderful. I didn't tear really at all. I think being in that different position really helped. And I know second babies, I was probably a bit more stretched out. Um, but I would say that the labor and then really the post postpartum labor, postpartum healing process was much easier with my son than with my daughter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that tear, you know, a a bad tear definitely has a big impact on recovery for sure. And, you know, there's differences between every, every labor and every postpartum recovery, but that can definitely be a big factor. What are some of the like postpartum, you know, immediate postpartum practices there. And, and it sounds like it may be different in Hannah's practice than, you know, in some of the national hospitals, like you were talking about, but, um, I'm curious what elements of traditional Guatemalan postpartum practices may still be there. Um, what, what, you know, in terms of like bonding with the baby after birth, breastfeeding, um, breastfeeding all that kind of stuff. What did that look like? Yeah, I'll, maybe I'll speak to what happened to me with in Hannah's clinic and then what I know of the larger kind of Guatemalan culture. Um, again, I think Hannah is really supportive of, you know, trusting, I mean, your body and the baby. Um, so right away, I just, I got I to hold my babies for, I don't know, as long as I kind of wanted, I think. At some point, we, we both kind of got a little cold in the water, but I waited, mm-hmm. I mean, I think I waited at least 20, maybe 30 minutes before... I delivered the placenta. Um, and then, you know, she kind of checked that. And then my husband cut the cord. Um, and, and then I think I, I got to hold both, I'm trying to think both of my kids for a long time. Um, I think just on my chest. And I actually want to say, I think, I think Hannah, I think she kind of, she stitched up me and kind of checked me before they even did like the APGAR Apgar, I don't even know what it's called because we don't call it that here. Mm-hmm. But at some point, they took the baby like from my chest, um, and and checked, you know, his reflexes and you know his breathing, and they weighed him. And but it wasn't immediate. It wasn't like there was no urgent. What I appreciated, there was really no urgency or rush to do anything. It was just this kind of peaceful, kind of like again, there was no emergency. So right. this peaceful process of yeah, we're gonna you know check out your baby and weigh him, but it doesn't have to happen like right now, the moment he got out. Right. I know in a lot of, a lot of Guatemalan hospitals, cause I've had numerous friends who that's where they've had their babies. There's a high value again on warmth and on cleanliness. And so babies are usually, I mean, taken, even if they're healthy, they're taken away right away to be weighed and measured and kind of, you know, all their vitals checked. And then they're, they're bathed right away. It's like to kind of, mm-hmm. you know, look clean, which there's nothing wrong with that. But I, you know, Hannah doesn't do that. And I kind of wanted my babies just with that fresh, like sweet baby, you know, I forget what it is, the Vernix, all the, you know, it just, yeah, kind of all soaks in. And I just liked that they were, you know, again, nothing that happened outside of kind of my, outside of that little room. I mean, we were all there the whole time together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then, I mean, Again, nothing was really stressful. I think both of my kids were real eager to like kind of, you know, suck or at least try to breastfeed. Um, I remember with my daughter, I had a lot of questions because it was really painful. I don't think I was surprised how strong their little latches can be. Um, And I didn't really, it just felt awkward. I think breastfeeding 
feels like new and, you know, it's foreign that first time. Yeah. Um, and Hannah would, she was, I mean, also kind of right there. She'd kind of give me some pointers and say, this looks good or try her in this position. Um, and then with my daughter, we were both so tired. I remember, um, I think I brought soup. So my husband heated up soup and we had like a meal. We FaceTimed my family. This was, you know, four years ago. And then I fell asleep. And I think my husband held my daughter for the first part of the night, just like in his lap. And I fell asleep. And Hannah, I think, stayed at the clinic. And she just said, if you need something, you know, holler or call. But she just kind of trusted like, you, I mean, you're your best thing for your baby. And so there was no, no interruption, no coming in during the night. And then my husband woke up probably, I don't know, four or five and we traded and I held the, you know, my daughter and he slept. Um, and same with my son, although we actually, we came home that same day because my daughter was at home. So I remember after birth, like I just got to hold my son. He nursed a little bit. We laid on the bed and took a nap. My husband took my, my mother-in-law out to go get some food and they brought me back lunch and we just kind of rested on the bed. And, um, I mean, Hannah would come in to check, you know, I think to making, make sure that my uterus was shrinking and I wasn't yeah. bleeding too much. Um, but, and there's no, ways, there's no other support staff there. There's not like other people coming she, and checking on you. No, I mean, she does have, um, her daughter's also a midwife, like an intern. And so she would come in to check on me. Um, and I think if I had questions or I was real nervous about something, or I think I asked her about something about the baby, about my son, I forget what it was. And they'd come in and kind of check, oh, I know, because he was tongue tied. And so they'd kind of, they, they came in and they clipped his tongue because um, he was having a little bit, a hard time kind of latching on. Um, but again, it, it just felt so like there, there was no, there was very little stress. It was just, um, it was just, it was a wide, wonderful, I feel like I had a wonderful birth experiences. And then one of the reasons I, I really wanted, I think, uh, midwifery care, at least here, is that Hannah also does postpartum checkup. And so she came to our house, yeah, I think, so great. two days, two days later, and then a week later, and then six weeks later. Nice. Um, and she came to check the baby, but also really to check me. So I just appreciated, especially the first time around, and the second, and even the second time around, not having to like pack up the kids in the car seat and drive. But I, I didn't have to go to the pediatrician, you know, to get him checked. Or she came to our house, and I just I love that. And she speaks English, which was also important to me. My Spanish is decent, but I um, I knew that in those moments of kind of birth and labor, and maybe the questions that that yeah. come with you don't want to be. Yeah, putting yourself in like this state of having to extend yourself mentally. Yeah, yeah. Kind of difficult. You know, mm -hmm. actually, and I forgot. So with my son, he was actually breached um, from probably about, I think I did an ultrasound, maybe around 20 weeks, which I guess is somewhat normal, until 30, 35 weeks he was breached. And I, I had done all the like laying on a, you know, ironing board with your feet up and yeah. crawling on, you know, cat and cow and trying to do head. I mean, anything that all the, you know, the websites say to kind of get a, you know, help a baby to have more room to flip. And he just was as content and comfortable as could be. Mm -hmm. And so again, I didn't, I've never had a baby in the U S I've never given birth in the U S or had a breech baby in the U S and, and again, Hannah just wasn't overly concerned. She knew I already had given birth. She said she can give, she can, you know, do a breech birth. She's done plenty of them. She wasn't 
worried about it. But she also said she could try to flip him, um, which I know a lot of times midwives, my sister is seeing a midwife and she's also pregnant. She said her midwives will not, like they actually can't legally flip or do an inversion. I'm sure for a variety of reasons, I don't know, in California. Um, but the funny thing is, and I just have really trusted Hannah, which it's so like I was on my living room floor. She came for a pre, uh, pre, what's it called? Pre, prenatal, postnatal, prenatal. Thank you. Prenatal checkup. <laughs> and he was still breached and he, his head was pretty far engaged. And I love that every appointment she'd kind of show me where he was and I could kind of feel him. And my daughter at the time was super interested. So she would kind of let her, you know, feel her baby brother, um, and listen to the heartbeat. And so I laid on my like living room floor and she got some coconut oil and she had, um, I mean her intern and a Doppler. And so I just trusted, you know, and, and they already knew like my placenta was, Oh, I know my, my placenta was anterior. And so they had to be a little extra careful, mm-hmm. obviously, because yeah. of where that was. But, um, I think she chose to do it earlier rather than later, even though I think most of the time doctors in the U.S. won't do it until 38, 39 weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, she's had, I guess, more success doing it a little bit earlier because then babies can kind of resettle in that new position with kind of their little bum, you know, down in the pelvic floor. And so she kind of like, and it wasn't super uncomfortable, but I could definitely feel she kind of like lifted, not lifted, but kind of pushed his, his head out because he was pretty low and engaged. And then kind of like, I think kind of pushed him like in or like kind of made him do a little like somersault. Mm -hmm. Um, and then she, she did it. She, she binded me, bound me. I don't know what the right word is Mm -hmm. with kind of, um, what do we call them here? We call them Uh, a faja in Spanish. Abdominal binder kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, she had like a, it was kind of like a cotton, like wrap almost. And so she wrapped me, um, at the bottom to kind of keep him up. Um, no, I'm sorry. She wrapped me at the top to kind of keep him down. She just flipped him. And then she told me to like walk around the block for, you know, a few minutes. And, and then she came back, I came back and she checked to make sure like heartbeat was still steady. And I know there's a way to tell between like the placenta kind of heartbeat and then like the baby's heartbeat. And mm-hmm. she could kind of tell where they were and that they were like sounding good. And, um, so I, and I, I realized after the fact, as I was talking to friends, how, um, how abnormal that is or how like that wouldn't happen probably in the U S you can't have a midwife, you know, do an inversion on your living room floor for your baby. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, there are midwives that do it. <laughs> uh huh. Definitely. But yeah, it's not as definitely not a standard of a practice. And, and there, are, I mean, there are OBs that, that do that here too. But just um, require you be in the hospital. Yeah. You'd that. have to be yeah. in a certain setting. I actually had a, um, a doula client a few months ago who had a, um, just like a, a clinic version um, where it was a naturopathic midwife that was not her mm-hmm. care provider, but actually the hospital um, staff recommended her to the patient. They said, if you, if you want to get a version, you know, go to so-and-so and, and she'll do it for you. And so I actually attended with her and got to watch it. So that was pretty, that was pretty cool. Did you find, I mean, you said it didn't, it wasn't super uncomfortable. Were you nauseous or dizzy or anything like that? No, nothing. Um, yeah, I just, no. Um, I mean, it felt a little uncomfortable as she was kind of pushing, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of move the baby, but I think it's really important. I, I would say p- pretty quickly on during like prenatal stuff with my daughter, just felt a really good rapport with Hannah and just really trusted her. Mm-hmm. Um, she was very approachable. So when I had a question, I would call her, text her, you know, what medicine could I take? I had a cold and what could I try? Um, and she, I never felt belittled kind of like she welcomed my questions. 
um, about my own health, my baby's health. And also was kind of matter of fact, like she didn't exaggerate or make me feel worried or fearful. She was like cautious and careful, but really I just had a great rapport with her. And so I think that is so important throughout the whole birth process because then I just trusted her. I wasn't excited about having a breech birth, but I would have done it knowing that I really trust her, mm-hmm. her level of expertise. She knows what she can handle and what's best for me and the baby. And she knows when she can't as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I had another friend who was having her first son and he was breached and wasn't, wasn't moving. And she had a really small, I think kind of pelvis, you know, whatever the measurements were. And so Hannah didn't even attempt kind of a breech birth. She said, I just think, you know, this baby needs to have a C-section and they kind of did a humanized C-section at the OB with Hannah there. And I always appreciate those kind of stories because I think it's great when midwives or really, you know, any medical professional know kind of their limits or when it's best to ask for outside help or expertise. And so, um, yeah. Yeah, I think it it's really evident in what you said as far as trusting her expertise. But also, I think that that can be a really powerful tool for trusting yourself because Hannah trusts you, too. And so mm-hmm. I think that when, when yes. you're in labor, I think I hear that a lot from people who, whether, I mean, and, you know, we talk a lot about midwives on the show because we're, I'm a midwife and that's just how it goes. But I think that, you know, like you said, there's also great OBs out there. And I think anytime you find yourself in a place where you feel that trust with your care provider, it, that reflection back is confidence mm-hmm. in, in, uh-huh. you and in the process with birth. And so I think it's, it sounds like you definitely have that rapport with her. And then, like you said, I, I love that too. I love hearing about kind of how things go when things, you know, how, how, how do they handle things when things don't go, you know, ABC, like what happens then mm-hmm. just kind of having that information. Um, I did really want to ask you about breastfeeding in Guatemala. Is that something that's very popular still or is that a lot of formula feeding or? You know, I think it's maybe a little bit, again, I feel like what we saw maybe in the U.S., you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago is um, breastfeeding is, and it's, it's changing a little bit, but I would say for some moms, it's kind of seen as like, again, what you do, cause you have to do it. But if you have resources and you can buy formula right. and you can feature baby, you can feature baby with bottles and it's, you know, maybe cleaner or I'm not sure what the idea is. It's like a status thing a little bit, or mm-hmm. I think a lot of moms who have more resources will breastfeed for a little bit. And then it's just easier to leave formula for with a nanny, or it's easier to just, you know, prepare a bottle and bring your baby wherever and not have to breastfeed. Um, again, I'm making a generalization. I think there are still plenty of moms who breastfeed because they want to. Um, obviously, Hannah is a huge proponent, and I um, I have a lot of flexibility in my work and breastfeeding. After the initial few days of like, gosh, this hurts, and my nipples have never been so sore, um, really came really easily. Um, my daughter was a great nurser; she wanted to nurse all the time. Um, and Guatemala, and this actually surprised me is very, at least in the communities where I've kind of worked and where we live, nobody bats an eye if you're nursing. Um, so I've never had or used one of like those nursing covers. I mm-hmm. forget what they're called. Like, a, you know, like this has a little like peephole in the front and then it kind yeah. of hangs out over your chest. Um, because I mean, women just breastfeed wherever they are. I mean, women are discreet sometimes. Like they'll have, you know, like a little blanket or like sling over one side while they're nursing, but they're not trying to hide what you're doing. It's like pretty mm-hmm. clear you're nursing a baby. Yeah. Um, and, and no one just seems to, it's just what you do. And I've appreciated that kind of, yeah. I guess, flexibility of, or not, it's just not a thing. Um, 
And I remember I was, you know, probably two or three days postpartum and was still kind of figuring out nursing. It was, you know, wearing my nursing tank, sitting in our rocking chair and had my, you know, daughter and my husband like came in kind of around the corner of our family room and said, you know, my family's here. They want to meet Elena. And I'm like, well, I'm nursing. He's like, well, they, it's like, that's fine. I'm like, are you sure? Like I can just sit here <laughs> nursing. I'm like, yeah. your dad and brother-in-law and nephews and nieces are going to come in. He's like, yeah, it's fine if you're fine. And I was like, okay, why not? It's easier. So initially I was like, this is a little weird. And, but then, I mean, you know, four years in, I, I really appreciate that I can sit at the like lunch table, everyone's eating lunch and I can feed my child while I'm eating my lunch and no one, no one bats an eye. Um, and I have to readjust when I go to the U S and I'm like, Oh, okay they're probably not comfortable here. If I'm nursing while we're all talking, I'll, I'll like kind of, you know, go to the, you know, the next room or I'll get a blanket to put over, you know, one, one shoulder. Um, or but you, I really, or you could not, you could help them get used to it too. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I could. respect what you're saying. I think it totally, you can kind of feel the room a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, and I nurse, I mean, I, this wasn't my plan. It just was kind of how it worked out. My daughter, goodness, she nursed until, she was two and a half, um, much longer than I ever imagined or planned on nursing. Um, almost to the point where Guatemalans were still asking, is she still nursing? And I was like, yeah, we're still nursing. Um, but she just, it was comforting and it worked for us for a long time. And she would have probably kept nursing. I think I kind of felt like, okay, I'm, I'm ready for this season to be done. You're a little um, touched out at that point. Yeah. And we, uh, we, we got down just to once a day and it was what she did in the morning when she woke up. And, yeah. um, but yeah, but my son, he still nurses and, and he's just, I feel like there's nothing like motherhood to make you appreciate like innate kind of personality and just that nature of how kids are made. Because my daughter really never took a pacifier. Bottles were always a challenge. Even when I pumped, she was just very, very particular. And for a while I thought, it's because I've done something or because, you know, she can't, she's not adaptable. Someone else can't put her to sleep. Only me, only while nursing. Yeah. But I think now I can look back and I just know that is who she was. And it's really who she still is, even as a four-year-old. And then my son came along and he's a great nurser, but I can also pump and leave him a bottle. And my husband or the babysitter will give it to him. He can go to sleep with the pacifier or nursing or a bottle or just being held He's just more adaptable as a little kid. And I didn't do anything different. He's just like a different person. And that's been a surprising thing about being a mom a second time is how different kids are. Yeah. And I think you can so easily get caught up in, like you said, this, you know, you, you nurse, you you nurse your daughter for two and a half years. She, you know, you're the only one that can put her to sleep, you know, and, and you start wondering like, is, is this how it's always going to be? And obviously, you know, in your head rationally that she won't nurse forever. But you do kind of wonder, like, well, will she always be, you know, clingy? Or will she always this? Or will she always that? And I think that certainly our kids' personalities, they, you know, they do stay with them. And there are certain elements that may, you know, carry through their childhood. But it's, it's really, really easy to forget that, like, these even even though you nurse her for two and a half years which is a really long time it's still just a season and she's not going to be 10 years old and you know no one can put her to bed but but you you know it's it's just really Mm -hmm. easy to forget that stuff um and having a second kid especially one that's totally different will that that'll do it that's you know that'll teach you like oh okay this is it's everything is a season everything you know changes and it changes so quickly even though in the moment it can feel like it's a long time 
Uh-huh. And I think having the cultural component of there's a lot of right or there's there's no one right way to raise a child. And, and mm-hmm. I think culture is like intuitively intuitively believe like this is how you nurse a baby. This is how you raise a child or, you know, put a baby to bed because that is what the general cultural does. Mm-hmm. But when you're living in, a, I think, a country and a culture outside of, you know, the one where I grew up, you know, you kind of opened your eyes again of like, oh, I mean, most Guatemalan kids, and again, I'm making a generalization, would sleep, I mean, in the same room as their parents or in their bed. And it's yeah. not like co-sleeping is like a fad or like a thing. It's just, it, it oh, is out of necessity, which is what you do. I think a lot of countries around the world, mm-hmm. um, it's not like you sit around and decide. It's like there's usually not space or there's not this like separate room for a nursery yeah. or for a bedroom. And you don't have usually resources for a crib and the safest, you know, warmest place is with mom and dad in bed. And that's just what a lot of families do. Um, and so again, and I think I grew up with a much, you know, I would say maybe more typical us, like this is a nursery, this is the crib, this is where the baby sleeps. Um, and I think even, you know, things like safety is very cultural. I mean, in the U S I think we're, we're hyper, you know, I don't know if the word is safe, but hyper aware of science and safety, but so much of that is even cultural. Um, so I have just learned a lot, I think, as a mom, and I feel like we're still figuring out, you know, we'd probably do a mix of some things. I still think swaddling is a really, you know, comforting way for babies to sleep. Um, and so we still like swaddle our kids, or I mean, sorry, swaddle our son, not not, mm-hmm. not the four-year-old. <laughs> um, and and I, we, we did with our daughter, and our daughter was a horrible sleeper. And just has always had a hard time with sleep, even with the swaddle, even, you know, in the crib, even being held. She just had, has had a hard time with sleep. And the mm-hmm. funny thing is, I mean, she's four and she still has a hard time going to sleep. I mean, she's not napping anymore. So there's less, her sleep takes up, takes up less energy during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then our son, I swaddle him, but I can put him in the crib. We do have a crib. He can sleep in the co-sleeper. He'll sleep in bed next to me. He can sleep in the ergo. He is just more adaptable sleep. He just is an easier sleeper. And I sense it's kind of just maybe how they're wired. But my mother-in-law, this was a few years ago, told me how when she was at her house one day and she saw her granddaughter, my daughter, Elena, like in one of those, you know, Velcro swaddlers, looks like a straight jacket. And then I put her upstairs in her crib alone in a dark room and my mother-in-law said she went home and cried just <laughs> how foreign that felt like yeah just to leave uh, an infant like my granddaughter like without her mm. arms ability to use her arms in a crib by herself in a dark room alone those are yeah. like the worst things in a Guatemalan culture um and and I just you know I've learned a lot about just cultural values and different ways to raise kids Right. And it's beautiful that you're able to kind of synthesize these different experiences, you know, the things that that you grew up with or that you're bringing to the table and also these pieces of this culture that you're, you know, immersed in and you have, you know, access obviously to your husband and your mother-in-law and all the, you know, different women around you in your community. You get to kind of, you know, in a way, like pick and choose what is going to work for you. And we all get to do that. We all get to pick and choose. But I love when you have, when you get immersed in something else that's going to force you to identify and to like choose from different things than you, than you would normally have in your, in the setting that you grew up in. And I think that with like, I love to like, 
you know, we've talked a little bit about some of the maybe more traditional parts of Guatemalan culture that, you know, that aren't so present now, you know, maybe in the medical system or whatever else. And yet there are plenty of things from everything you've told us that there are so many of these traditional aspects of their culture that are that are still really, really precious and, and meaningful to them. And, you know, your mother-in-law would have been so impacted by being able to be at your birth, which is something she's never been able to experience before. Um, and, and yet on this other side, she's, you know, has these, these, you know, very, very distinct and precious beliefs about, you know, child rearing and that kind of thing. So I love that. Yeah. I think everybody kind of gets to do a little bit of both. I feel like something we do and you referred to this a little bit too in the U S there's so much research. People do a lot of personal research on like what way should I try to, you know, get my baby to sleep or what are the best ways to do early breastfeeding or, you know, kind of preparations looking into, you know, whether it's looking into your own culture, your own subcultures and just the dichotomy of like here, I feel like people who are seeking out home birth or out of hospital birth are more privileged yeah. So it's kind of like the mm-hmm. opposite, opposite. You know, the opposite model. And I think whether that is, you know, whatever choices people make that are best for them, I think um, I've just really enjoyed kind of hearing you talk about navigating that and just listening to yourself and listening to your kids. And I think um, what, you know, whether you were in California or Guatemala, you would have that experience. Yeah. Um, but you kind of get to do yeah. it in a way that, like you said, you can kind of sense it because, you know, there are these kind of movements and culture that you're kind of figuring out as you figure out your own mom, you're like creating your own mom culture as well, like your own mothering culture. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I've, um, again, as I've watched, you know, friends and peers of mine who are in the same stage, but in the U S and then watching kind of my sister-in-laws and Guatemalans here, I think one of the richness, one of the riches, the richnesses that Guatemalans bring is just the wealth of relationships and people that are brought into a family's life, especially with a new baby. So it'd be very uncommon for like a mom and a new baby to be at home alone for six or eight or 10 hours a day. That would almost rarely ever happen. Yeah. Even if it's a traditional sense of maybe where the husband is working and the mom is staying at home, there would almost always be nieces or nephews or a cousin or a mother-in-law or an aunt, other women, maybe more than one who are, who are around and who are kind of mothering together. Mm -hmm. And so there isn't as much access to information or even like the need to be searching out for, should I do this method or this method? Because you have, you have other hands to help. So if someone is holding your baby, maybe, you know, in a sling and you're cooking lunch and then someone else is, you know, washing dishes while you give your baby a bath. And there's always, I'm moving there. tomorrow. (laughs) Um, I I mean, there, there, there really is this kind of, there are many hands to help, you know, do the work of mothering and of taking care of kids. And so, um, and childcare is affordable. I would say most of my expat friends and Guatemalan friends who have, you know, any kind of stable job or work outside the home can afford childcare. And so, you know, there's again, just other people. And when I hear friends in the U S talk about sometimes I think how lonely and isolating it is, to, and I think in the U.S. because we value individualism and we kind of value this nuclear family above all else. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, it, you know, from reasons of work or choice, whatever, we we move far away from our extended family, like moms and aunts and whomever else. And so, really, it is so common, I think, to have you know one woman, a mom, taking care of one or multiple children by herself for hours upon hours. And I just don't think that's the way. I think that's really hard. And um, I see that here. And I think Guatemalan women 
don't know anything different. Again, I don't want to glorify Guatemalan women work really hard in, in many ways, mm-hmm. but having the richness of just hands to help and to hold um, and just people around to help with just the ins and outs of taking care of babies is um, something that I feel like I wouldn't have in the U.S. And, and again, it makes me miss my own mom a little bit more because I'm not sure if I would live right near here, but I would live near her, at least within driving distance. Um, but because we're a plane flight away and, you know, yeah. um, a country between us, it's a little bit harder. Yeah. Well, everything that you've just said, you know, that that community and, and in a real actual tangible way, like you're describing, because I think we use the word community really, really, really loosely nowadays. And that can mean anything from like, I see my friends once a week to like, I'm part of some, you know, online Facebook groups and, and not that those are not valid aspects of community. They are, but what you're describing is a, just a whole other level. And I think that that is huge. And there's plenty of research that shows the impact that that has even on postpartum depression. Like isolation Mm -hmm. is absolutely, I mean, it's just a, it's just a breeding, breeding pool for, you know, for like mental health issues. It's really when, and when you're, you know, stuck at home all day, like you said, with, you know, an infant and maybe a toddler and who knows, maybe a couple of, you know, older kids too. I mean, that is just, it it makes you defenseless in a lot of ways. Um, I was gonna kind of wrap up by asking you what you think the biggest impact that Guatemalan culture has had on your experience of being a mother, but in some ways it feels like you may have just, you may have just answered that question for us with what you were just telling us. Is there anything you would want to add to that for our listeners? Um, you know, I think it was actually, I heard something Shauna Nyquist say in an interview about letting other people in to kind of help parent your parents or sorry, letting other people in to help parent your kids. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, that involves letting go of some of your preferences because other people, other adults may do things different with your kids. And I heard that in an interview with her years ago. And I think by the nature that I'm in Guatemala and the nature that my husband's family is Guatemalan and they naturally do things different with my kids. And so it's kind of forced me to let go. I have plenty of preferences and opinions and things that I may think are, are right or best for my kids. Um, but it's forced me to kind of choose the relationship and the help that they provide mm-hmm. over my preferences for certain tasks or things that I want my kids to have or not have. Yeah. Um, and so I think, again, living here and just having, again, seen the different ways parents raise their kids and things they do and not do, I think it's forced me to live a little bit more open, knowing that, um, yeah, parenting looks so, and mothering looks so different in every culture. And mm-hmm. my way to do it, although it feels familiar and comfortable to me, is not the best and not the right way. And if I want other people's help, which I so dearly need and do, it's going to look different. And so I've had to just kind of embrace and accept that. And it's been really good, I think. Yeah. And that just means trusting that even though, like you said, you may have to give up some of your preferences or your ideal scenarios of how things will go, that what those people bring to the table and how they benefit your children is far greater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. It's yeah, been thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, it's been wonderful to to hear your unique story and to um, share this with our listeners. So we will 
Um, we'll have some show notes on our blog where we'll provide a few links to some of the different things we've talked about, um, including the organization you work with and a few different things about um, you know, the, the medical system down there. Um, and we can't wait to share. Great. Well, thank you. It was fun to talk to you guys. Yeah. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening to Mother Birth today. If you want to be a bigger part of our community, you can follow us on Instagram at motherbirth.co or connect with us on Facebook, where we have all kinds of behind-the-scenes stuff going on. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate us in iTunes, which allows other people to find us and helps the show to grow. I think it goes without saying, but Mother Breast is a personal podcast created by Lara and Lisa. It's intended as general information. It doesn't constitute or substitute medical advice of any kind. You should always consult with your primary care provider with respect to your medical care. If you're pregnant, planning on becoming pregnant, or in the postpartum period.